Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Good morning, church family. It still is morning, right? What time is it? How long do we have? 15 minutes. What time's lunch? What time is the members meeting? What time's that thing you got to do later today? We talk about time a lot, don't we? Like, time kind of runs our life in a sense, doesn't it? Aren't we slaves to the clock? All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, if you would turn there. This is a passage so many of us know. If you're asked about the book of Ecclesiastes, probably chapter 3 comes to mind. The key verse of the book is there. This whole picture about times and seasons is one that we know really well. Or maybe at least we think we know really well. We should talk about that today. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Let's read the first nine verses together as we begin. It'll be up on screen. We like to use the English Standard Version for our teaching time on Celebration Sundays here with Faith Baptist Church family. Uh, We like that version. There are many good versions of the scriptures. We find that this one is really close to the original languages in the whole translation process, and we enjoy how readable it is. That's why we go with English Standard Version. So we have that up on screen. I'd encourage you to bring your copy of the scriptures and follow along. It's a good practice. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1 to 9. For everything, there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. There's a time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to laugh a time to mourn and a time to dance. I don't have so many of those dancing times in my life, if I'm honest with you. I don't really like to dance, April. Verse five, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. I enjoy the refraining from embracing times. A time to seek and a time to lose, lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? Would you join me in a moment of prayer? God, we want your understanding for this passage. There's a lot of depth here. God, help us to read and to hear Pray that your Holy Spirit will be working in our hearts to understand what you really want us to know personally and individually today, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Time. I appreciate what Steve said last week. I think it was in the announcement time he talked about keeping a calendar and writing things down. I always find it really interesting when I'm talking to someone and we're talking about something coming up and a date and an event and they don't write it down or they don't pull out their calendar and schedule it in. I have to do that. If I don't do it, it'll be in one ear and out the other. Anybody else like that? Keeping track 
of time. I like to set alarms because otherwise I'll be working out in the woods and I'll look at my clock and realize it's three in the afternoon and I've been out there for eight hours. And time just flies by. I lose track of time. Time's an interesting concept, isn't it? We never, ever, 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 ever seem to have enough time. We're always looking for more time. If we could just turn back time, daylight savings time, what we're going to do with that extra hour, right? We always want more time, but yet we struggle with impatience, don't we? And things seem to take too long and waiting in line. We can spend a half hour in the bathroom on our phone, but 10 minutes in the lineup at Tim Hortons, I mean, come on. Time. It's a weird thing. Time is relative, isn't it? The moon circles in relation to the earth. The earth circles in relation to the sun. Doesn't this look like what we drew last week, round and around? Last week we talked about sunrise and sunset. And our clocks are relative to that cycle around the sun. Every circle around the sun is a year. Every rotation of the earth where it looks like the sun rises and it looks like it sets is a day. And we are stuck in time. All of our lives are relative to time. We do everything in relation to time. When is it? How long will it take? How long ago? Everything is in relation to time because we're stuck in time. But more important than how much time you have is how you spend your time. So what times and seasons are you living today? What season of life are you in? Maybe your mind goes to age and stage. Maybe you're at the age and the stage when the kids are leaving the nest and it's a whole new season of life. What's next? Maybe you're getting ready to graduate high school. What's next? A whole new season of life. Maybe you're retiring. What's next? A whole new season of life. Maybe you're downsizing. A whole new season of life. Maybe you're thinking of the verses we just read. Maybe the season of embracing is over and it's time to let go. Maybe the season of collecting the stones is turning into the season of decluttering all the things that you've collected. A purge. Anybody already feeling spring cleaning coming on? I love spring cleaning. Maybe it's a season of weeping. Maybe it's a season of laughter. Maybe this is a season of breaking. And you're hoping that there's a season of building that's coming after all this breaking down. Maybe you're hoping that this season of breaking down is just God preparing you for the season of building up. And when is it going to come? Why do we wait? What is waiting all about? Why do we desire one season over another? Are there some times in life that are less meaningful than other times? Less significant than other times? I remember watching the clock in high school and it used to go so slow in the morning leading up to lunchtime and I couldn't wait for those hands to meet at the top and then we could go to lunch. And then after lunch, going back to class and waiting for those hands to get over to three o'clock so that we could go home, it seemed to take so long. But then once you got home, it seemed like that clock sped up and then you were back at school again. 
that mundane cycle of life, waiting, wishing that we could jump through seasons, watching the advent calendar leading up to Christmas. Maybe you're not a winter person and you're waiting and watching for spring. When are those robins going to come? Maybe you're a teen at home and you're waiting for that day when you're independent and you're out from under your parents' roof. Or maybe it's just a hard season in your life. There are so many in our church family who have undergone loss and struggle, real struggle through this last year. And they're, they're coming through a season of difficulty in their life. So many of us. What's the point of tough times and tough seasons? Why do we go through them? Why can't we just skip over the seasons of breaking down and loss and letting go? We only have so much time, so why would we want to spend it in tough times? Um, this is a remote. I don't know what it controls. Will it turn anything off? No, I guess not. Wouldn't it be nice if you could just like skip to the next channel on the episodes of your life, the days of our lives, and skip through this season and on to the next. You know what, I really don't like what's going on in this season. It's hard for the paycheck to cover all the bills by the end of the month, and I don't like the cold weather, and we're going through all this sickness and flu in my house. Skip next. Don't you wish you could do that? Kind of sounds like an Adam Sandler movie, doesn't it? We don't have commercials at home unless it's a quick one on YouTube and you can just wait five seconds and hit skip. So my kids will never know what it was like to have to rewind the VHS tape at the end of the movie. Of course, you didn't do it at the end of the movie. You did it the next time you wanted to watch it. And then it was like, oh, now I've got to rewind it before I watch it. They'll never know what it was like, I assume. They don't at this moment in time anyway. Watching live TV and having to wait for those commercials. No, you went to the <laughs> yeah, that's right. You got other things done. One more commercial, mom, before I have to go to bed. You remember that? My kids won't know that because they can just go skip. I'm not waiting for that. Skip, skip, skip. Wouldn't it be nice to have a remote control for your life so when you get in those hard seasons, you can just hit skip next, skip Ah, this season is a little loud. The kids are pretty young. They're always screaming and running. There's always stuff going on around the house. Mute. <laughs> I'm enjoying this season of life. I don't want this season of life to be over. I don't want my kids to grow up. I like them being home and innocent and not understanding all that goes on in society and not engaging in those conversations with those people. Let's just slow this down a little bit and just hang out right here because I really like this season of life. Would it be nice if you could just control time? Have you ever thought that? Man, I wish we could go back and relive the glory days and hit rewind. Play from beginning. Wouldn't that be nice? You know what I learned through COVID when we started doing this whole online thing? And there was a time when we weren't doing it live. We were pre-recording the Celebration Sunday service on Thursday. So you're preaching to an empty room, which is totally weird. But having the ability to say, oh, Alex, I did that part totally wrong. Let's just start from this part. That actually turned into so much of an issue in my experience of preaching with my church family. It was actually so much harder than it is when you're doing it live and in person and you don't have the ability to say, oh, I wish I could say that differently. Go back, go back, go back. 
because I found I turned into a bit of a perfectionist. And it's like, I don't really like how I said that. I think I can do it better. Let's jump back and do that again. Let's jump back and do that. Let's jump back and do that again. And a 30-minute sermon took like an hour and 30 minutes to record. And Alex is giving me the death glare from the back, like, just get this done so we can go home. It actually made it harder. Do you ever wish you could control time? Skip through the bad seasons? Hang on in the good seasons? Jump back to verse 1, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 1. For everything, every little thing, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. This is the Hebrew term. The term seasons is the Hebrew term zaman, meaning fixed time or appointed time. So let me ask you this. Who fixed the time? Who set the appointed time? Who chooses the time? For everything in life, there's a season. For every matter under heaven, there is a time. Who chooses the time? God does, doesn't he? I thought that'd be an easy answer. God sets the time. God fixes the time. God appoints the time. I don't know how much time I have. God knows how much time I have. I don't know what season of life I'm about to go into in 2024. God knows what season of life and the time of that season. God sets the time because time is literally under heaven, the verse says. That speaks God's sovereignty to me over time. You see, we're stuck in time. We have to submit to time. There's Alex. I was just talking about you, Alex. You'll have to ask everybody what I was saying. Okay, you can do that. Yeah. You, you can do that. He's got it. Right? Okay. That's good, Alex. We didn't actually, we didn't actually talk about that ahead of time. What was I saying? God is sovereign. God is literally over time. Time is under heaven. Time is a physical reality in which we are stuck in this moment. And we can't change it. We can't turn back time. We can't skip through seasons because time is fixed under heaven. God is sovereign over time. Do you realize God does not dwell within the confines of time? He's omnipresent, which means he's everywhere. He's omniscient, which means he knows all things. And he's omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful, which means he's not stuck inside our physical reality of time and space. God is above time. You know what I've thought about? Sometimes I let you into my mind and the things that I think about when I'm driving down the road on my morning commute. You remember that conversation? So if God dwells outside of time, and I'm speculating here. Does that mean that in this moment, God is walking with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day? And he's talking to Moses at the burning bush? And he's taking down the walls of Jericho? And he's sending the judges to deliver the people of Israel? Like, how does God's sovereign dealings with humanity 
work in time and space if God is outside of time and space? I can't wrap my head around that one. But God is not stuck in time like we are stuck in time. We're slaves to time. We have to obey time. Whatever you do, whatever fountain of youth you try and find, whatever magic remote that takes you back to the good old days, you cannot. You can't time travel. Are they redoing Back to the Future? Did I see that? Yeah. You cannot time travel. It's fun to watch. It's fun to be entertained by. But you cannot actually do it. God is not marked by time. It's hard to wrap our mind around. But then the more difficult question emerges. If God is sovereign and he's outside of time and space, meaning he's, he knows what's coming, he knows what's past, he's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, the more difficult question that emerges is, why the difficult seasons? If God fixed them, if God appointed them, if God sets the times, why would God allow us to go through difficult seasons in life? If he is a good and loving heavenly father as we believe he is, as the Bible teaches he is, as we've experienced that he is, then why does God allow us to go through hard times? Isn't that the question in this passage? Why the hard times? Why the seasons of loss? Why the seasons of letting go? If God is in control, if he's sovereign, we know he doesn't cause evil. We know he allows evil because of the brokenness of sin in our world and our free will that we have a choice to follow him or not. But why does God allow hard seasons in our life? We'll get there after we tackle verse 10. Verse 10. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So God sets the appointed time. God fixes the times and the seasons in our life. God gives the business with which to be busy with. We can't choose the season, but we do have the free will to choose what we busy ourselves with in the season. We can't choose the season, but we can choose what we do with the season. We don't need to be slaves to our season. God has given us a business with which to be busy with, in our season. We're not slaves to the clock. We're to submit to God's will because he's over the clock. He's sovereign over time. You can't choose your season, but you can choose what you do with your season. God has things for you to learn and to do and to experience in this season. God has opportunities for you in this season that you're in that you won't find in any other season that you've experienced or will experience. God has things to teach you in the season you're in. God knows your season. God cares about you in your season. You see, deism is the belief that God is just this grand clockmaker who set the hands of time in motion, wound them up, and then sat back, and he's just watching time unwind and play down until it's done. And he's disinterested and uninvolved, and apathetic. But we know that's not our God. God set time in motion when he said, let there be light. And he divided the dark and the light, the night and the day. And then he said, this is the first day. He set time into motion. And ever since then, he has been involved. He has been caring. He has been benevolent. 
He has been directly involved in our lives, in this reality, in time. He's not sitting back and watching time play out, waiting for the final buzzer when he has to step in and judge humanity. He's involved. Here's how God works in our seasons. Verse 11. Now, verse 11 is a big one. So we're going to break it up into three parts. The whole thing will likely be on screen, but we're going to break it up into three parts. First part. He has made everything beautiful in its time. How many have heard this verse before? It's a popular one, isn't it? Maybe it's the first verse that comes to your mind when you think of the book of Ecclesiastes. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Do you realize that the difficult seasons, the frustrating seasons, the terrible seasons, the painful seasons, the seasons we have no patience for, seasons we just want to skip through, seasons we wish we could just get through. God is able to bring beauty into that season. God is able to work your season into something good, something beautiful. There are things in this life that I don't see the beauty in until years down the road. I don't appreciate until years down the road. I had this little framed up box in my mind of what beauty meant when I was a teenage boy. And I'm learning more and more that beauty comes in so many different situations and circumstances and images that we see through the seasons of this life. We have this day for hope coming up. I hope you got it marked down. February 10th, Saturday, 10 to 2. It's for those who've lost a loved one and or those who want to know how to better encourage and support and minister those who have lost a loved one. Those seasons of life that people go through, and we've all been through them, getting the opportunity to step into someone's loss and tragedy and minister and serve, maybe maybe help with funeral arrangements. I get to do that a lot with people. Sometimes that's my only connection with people in the community. Last fall, I walked into the home of a lady uh, whose sister was also there over in Bible Hill. I'd never met them before. It turns out they hadn't met me before. They just thought they did and they got my contact info. Actually, they were looking for my dad and they got my contact info and asked me to come. And after meeting with me for an hour and a half, they couldn't tell the difference between me and my father. That was kind of a scary thing. We laughed about that story later. But they thought I was my dad. But that's, that's not the beautiful thing in this story. The, uh, the beautiful thing is that I got to sit in the living room with these two dear sisters. I think they're in their 60s. And they're mourning the loss of their older brother. And I've never gotten to chat with these people, see these people, bump into these people, get to know their name before in my life. This is my first interaction. And they're inviting me into the depths of their brokenness and sharing their fondest memories of their brother as we prepare their fu- his funeral service. What a beautiful moment. I've heard Steve say time and time again that in those moments of brokenness and difficulty and seasons of loss and tragedy, things get said that would otherwise never get said. 
Opportunities for ministry happen that would otherwise never happen. When you're in one of those seasons of life, you ask questions that otherwise you never would. You experienced aspects of your heavenly father, his grace, his mercy, his compassion, his love, his nearness and dearness that otherwise you would never experience in your life. And that is a beautiful thing. That is beauty in the brokenness. He has made everything beautiful in its time. But if we skip the parts that seem bad, we miss those opportunities. Elsie and I were watching a show last night where there's these two parents on this sitcom and they're raising kids and their kids have made it to middle school and the whole episode was about them trying to protect their kids from all the pains of middle school. There's all these funny stories about their own middle school experience and how they were scarred from it and they're trying to protect their kids. And then this grandmotherly figure in the TV show steps in and gives some sage advice and wisdom. You cannot protect your kids from everything. In fact, if you keep your kids from these middle school experiences, they will actually miss out on these opportunities, these catalysts for growth and development and resiliency that will help to carry them through their years in this world. Do you believe that? And we want to protect them from hard seasons. Oh, I'm so sorry you're going through that. Well, yeah, we are sorry that they're going through that, but we're praying that God teaches them some incredible truths through this season. We don't want to skip the season. There is so much to be learned in the season. And you can see that in testimonies, can't you? When somebody steps up and talks about their journey of faith, their journey with Jesus, they point back to those hard seasons, don't they? When we talk about our friendships and we get together with old friends and family member, we talk about those difficult things that we've been through that really solidified and brought depth to our relationship, don't we? Justin and I have a deeper relationship because he was with me when I had heat stroke while we were mountain biking. It brought a new level to our relationship, right? You have your own stories like that. Going through hard seasons together forms bonds and relationships that are so deep and rich. Suffering together is hard. It's difficult. There's a struggle, but that's where beauty can be found. So many times that's where people meet Jesus is in the midst of a hard season. So he has made everything beautiful in its time. Then the next part. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. I feel like I quote this all the time. God doesn't just practically bring beauty into your season here and now. That's not the ultimate goal. Healing is beautiful. Getting to experience freedom in your relationships. Getting to experience good seasons and good things that come out of bad seasons is good. But it's not the ultimate goal of this life. God has placed eternity into your heart. Whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, you were created with eternity stamped on your heart. Every human being is an eternal being because God created them that way. And this is where a lot of the pain and the questions come from in this life. That eternity that has been stamped onto our hearts. 
Every beautiful moment in time that we experience is just a taste of that inward eternity that each one of us has stamped on our heart. The pleasure we talked about last week that only comes from him, the good things that we see in every season, the beauty in every season, it all points us back to him. Good times draw us to eternity with a good God. The eternity in our hearts can only be filled with eternity with him. There's not enough time in this world to fill the void of eternity that's been stamped on our hearts. It will always be wanting more. There's not enough time. There will always be hard times in every life. It's just a broken and marred image of the eternity that is to come. This is such a key verse to this whole book. Not just understanding the point of time, but the tension that we see through the entire book. What's the point of life under the sun? Well, it's to show us that we were made for more. There is more beyond the sun. Life cannot be satisfied under the sun. There is more than the short time that we have on this earth. We were made for more. No wonder humanity grows so restless, right? It's because we were designed for eternity. You don't see plants and animals with that same restlessness. Have you noticed this? You don't see the tree pulling at its roots, trying to get across the field like in Lord of the Rings because it just wants to try out something new. It wants to explore. It wants to figure out who it is. It's questioning its own identity. It has a crisis of identity. No, you don't see that. You just see it turning sunlight into energy and growing and developing, right? It just does what it does because that's what it's designed to do. And animals don't question their identity. They have these instincts. They know who they are. The bear knows it's time to hibernate. It's waiting for the warmth of spring because that's the instinct. That's the design that God placed within it. But human beings have been stamped with eternity. So we're asking these big life questions of why? Because we were made for more. This is not all that there is. God didn't put eternity in the heart wood of the tree. He didn't put eternity into the heart of the bear. He put eternity into the heart of mankind, which makes us constantly wonder and question who we are apart from God and apart from Christ. We were made for more. It's the eternity that's placed in our hearts. It's our opportunity to have a relationship with God. It's that immaterial part of us. It's the spirit that the animal doesn't have, the plant doesn't have, but humanity has a spirit. It's who we truly are, and it's how we will exist for all eternity. It's why we can have a relationship with God the way that we do, through Jesus Christ. Time can never fill the void. The point of time is to point us to eternity. Here's the last part of verse 11. Yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Here's the tension. We are here but we were made for there. We are physical, but we're really spiritual. We exist in this physical reality, but God designed us to exist with him for all eternity. So there's this tension between where we're at and where and who we were designed to be with. It's the whole tension through the book. Life under the sun without the understanding of life beyond the sun. There is more. We constantly say, if I just had more time. But the reality is, what would you do with it? 
it'll eventually run out and then you'll need more time. No matter when you're beginning and when you're end, how many years you have in this life, we can never fully realize all that God has done in this life under the sun. There will always be questions. There will always be more. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Solomon continues to play on this two-character approach. Some cynicism. He's a little bit jaded. He's taking the perspective of life under the sun. He just talked about eternity in our hearts, but now he says, look, if there's nothing more, then we should just enjoy these good little pleasures that God has given us in this life. Doing good for the time that we have on this earth, enjoying food and drink and work. All God's good gifts, but if this is all there is, let's just enjoy it. Makes me think of gratitude, doesn't it? What are we thankful for? Where does it come from? Appreciating the beauty in every season. Verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. This flies in the face of our talk last week. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Last week in chapter one, Solomon said that everything you do, everything that has been done has been forgotten. The weather and the elements have washed it away. It will all be forgotten after you. Nothing that you do, nothing that you are will last the test of time. And then he says, whatever God does endures forever. Do you get that tension? What you do is temporary. What God does is forever. What you do will be forgotten. What God does will stand the test of time. Take the Bible, for instance. God says that though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of the Lord will remain. It will endure forever. Think about it. 40 authors 66 books, like 1,400 years of the Holy Spirit inspiration bringing together the canon of Scripture, and it's lasted two millennia. And God says it will endure forever. And I've heard it said that there are only two things that make it out of this world, the Word of God and people. People because he stamped eternity on our hearts. The Word of God because he says it will endure forever. So should this not inform what we should be doing with the limited time that we have on this earth? Being involved in God's mission, God's work, being involved in eternal work, making it count for eternity because what we do here and now will be forgotten. It won't last. It won't span the test of time. Solomon continues with his cynical character questioning life under the sun. If there is nothing more, what's the point of time? Look at verse 19 and we'll finish our talk about time. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. We're just like animals. They all have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the beasts. All is vanity. All go to one place. All are from dust. To dust all return. Don't we say that at burials? Verse 21. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in all his work. For that is his lot. Who can bring him back to see what will be after him? 
if there's nothing more than the time that we have on this earth, and we don't know what happens to our spirit after we die, Solomon says as this cynical character, then what's the point? We're just like the animals. But he just got done saying that each person on the face of this earth has eternity stamped on our hearts. So we are so much more. There is so much more. There is life after death. Equally important to how we spend our time is who we spend our time with. In our rush to get through difficult seasons, we likely miss the opportunities to connect and relate to and minister to other people. Time together. I've heard it said repeatedly that maybe the reason God allows you to go through a difficult season in life is so that you can help and minister and encourage and admonish another person who goes through a similar season in their life. And now you can speak to it on a different level because you've experienced some of that in your own life and you've seen how God has worked in your heart. So Ecclesiastes chapter 4, as we talk about relationships uh, with the next eight minutes, and then we'll be done. Verse 1. We can do a whole chapter in eight minutes, can't we? You have little faith. Verse 1. Again, I saw all of the oppressions that are done under the sun. Behold, the tears of the oppressed, that they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. It's like trying to maintain your child's innocence, right? We want to keep them from the pain and the brokenness of this world. It's better if you don't go out into society and see all the problems. Are people lonelier than ever these days? People are searching for community, aren't they? Isn't this why celebrity culture, social influencer culture, sex culture, isn't that why there's so much of it? It's because people are looking to other people to fill the relational void that only God can fill in their heart. You know, your spouse will never satisfy you. Your group of friends will never be able to satisfy your need for a relationship. Only God can satisfy that longing of your heart. Solomon says, I looked around at the state of the world. People are oppressed and they don't have anybody to comfort them. They don't have anybody to speak on their behalf, to stand in their place, to support them, to pick them up. They have no comforter. That's a pretty key situation for the gospel to be preached into, isn't it? The state of our world today, don't people want to hear that there is a comforter? There is someone who wants to help them in their oppression? Where is the comforter? We'll revisit this picture quickly. Uh, we struggle with this whole community idea, don't we? We struggle with how to relate to other people. I don't know what to say to them. How will I communicate? How will we connect? We don't have anything in common. Ecclesiastes 4.4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. That's a pretty blanket statement, isn't it? This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. It's like keeping up with the Joneses. Competition. Well, look at the neighbor's yard. Look how they keep their gardens and their lawn. I mean, surely we should do at least that good, right? Since we live on the same street. I mean, they have to look at us. We have to look at them. So we should, you know, pick up our game here. Competition. Can you believe that every skill that's been learned, according to Solomon in this cynical, jaded character that he's playing, 
is because of envy. I want to get better than them at this. I don't want to get better for them. I want to get better than them at this. Verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. There's a picture for you. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after the wind. Solomon says, you don't work, you don't eat. If you don't do your part, you don't get to share in the spoils. And then he says, but don't work too hard. Because you don't want to have both hands grasping and never have any time for quiet, peace, and rest. Better to have one hand of quietness than have both hands going in two different projects, two different directions. This is one of those general truths of wisdom that Steve was pointing out three weeks ago. And I so appreciated that because it helps me to understand verses like this. Hey, if you don't work hard enough, you don't eat. But don't work too hard. Enjoy some quiet time and some rest and relaxation. What do you do with that? Well, you need wisdom. How do we discern what truth we need in the season and situation of life that we're in? It's called wisdom. How do we apply this truth? Look, I know how this, let me tell you how this happens. If I preach this message and I said, look, the bottom line is you only have so much time. So fight the good fight of faith like a soldier. Work hard like a farmer so the harvest will come in due time. And what's the other one? Yeah, run the race like an athlete. You know, work hard. Amen. If that was the application, I would walk out of that lobby time after preaching and I would shake some hands and it would be the people who are already doing too much, already serving in too many roles, involved in multiple areas on the team and serving in the community, already struggling a bit with their family because they don't spend sufficient time there because they're so involved at the church, who would come up to me and shake my hand and say, amen, pastor, I need to be doing more. And then the people who I would really hope God would work in their heart to stir them up and say, you know what, maybe I should do something for the kingdom, would come and say, good sermon, pastor, and head out the door. That's how it works. So we need wisdom to understand how to apply this truth to our situation. Do some people need to work harder? Probably. Should some people take more time for quiet rest and reflection? Probably. How do you discern between the two? Wisdom. We need wisdom. All right. Verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother. He has no, no person to inherit all his wealth. Yet there is no end to all his toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches. That's what we talked about in chapter 2. So that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. It's like the oppressed who has no one to comfort them. Is the person who works so stinking hard their entire life and they get to the end and they turn around and say, wait a minute, who was I doing all this for? I spent all these years, all this time, all those overtime hours, all those nights and weekends, for what? Or for who? And they leave their money to the government and there's no inheritance. I think of men who spend so much time at work 
Why? Well, to bring home the bacon, of course. And that's how we show love to our families. But then when we get home, we do more work. Maybe we hop onto our our device and we're answering emails. Maybe we go to the garage. Maybe we go to the yard. Maybe we go to the golf course, but we do more work. Maybe we go back to work. Well, who are you doing that for? My family. Well, where's your family? Not with me because I'm working. We need wisdom. We need wisdom. There are elements of contentment here. Steve's going to talk a bit about that next week in chapter six as we get there. When is enough enough? I get these grand ideas in my head of what I should have for my kids in the yard or in the the playroom for them to play with and enjoy their time. So I spend all my time, instead of with my kids who I'm doing this for, I spend all my time researching and resourcing and constructing and implementing. And then I've spent countless Saturdays apart from my kids, but I'm doing it for my kids. We kind of miss the point, do we? We work so hard, but... Who are we doing it for? We just talked about how we only have so much time. So who we spend our time with is probably almost more important than what we spend our time doing. Look at these pictures of time together that Solomon illustrates. I think we'll read these and and we'll be done. Two are better than one. Verse nine. Because they have a good reward for their toil. They can help each other out. They can share the load. You ever get to the end of a project and you think, I got to share this with somebody. I finally finished. You take a picture, you text it to somebody. I go get Elsie from the house and say, come see what I'm doing in the garage. I brought Reese out to the garage yesterday and said, look at this project, buddy. And he said, ah, cool, dad. And walked back inside. But we finish a project and we want to share it with somebody, right? We find a nice hiking trail. We want to share it with somebody. We go somewhere nice on vacation. We want to take somebody else there next year. We want to share it. Verse 10. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no one to lift him up. This is like how the chapter opened. The oppressor who had no one to comfort him. I think of all the two-man projects that I tried to do on my own. It would have been so much easier just to call up a neighbor, to ask a friend, to wait until somebody's there and say, Hey, do you want to give me a hand? rather than break my own back. There's wisdom there, engaging together in community. Maybe you can go pretty far on your own, but I can guarantee you, you can go farther with somebody else. We're stronger together. Verse 11, again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Now, don't be so quick to jump to a sexual application here. I was stoking the fire in the furnace this morning, and I've realized that if the wood isn't right together, it won't catch, it won't keep. Because that heat reflects from log to log so much better when there's contact. So I try and shovel the ashes so it all falls to the middle and it keeps on burning. Because as soon as those logs separate, they fizzle out. I think of teens who go off to Bible camp and for that week we talk about being on fire in that bubble, in that community, with those people, with that teaching, with the prayer, with the time together. And as soon as they come home and separate from the community and don't engage in another form of Christian community... The fire fizzles out, doesn't it? Two keep warm together. Verse 12. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Look, when you're alone, you're vulnerable. When we're in Honduras this week, one of the things that has been repeatedly said is we go together 
as a team. We're not going alone. When we go out on little excursions, you go with other members of the team. You don't go alone. When you're feeling down, maybe homesick, maybe scared or nervous, don't sit alone in your room. Be together with the team because there's strength in numbers. There's encouragement. There's admonishing all the one another's of scripture. I love the picture of the threefold cord. You picture a braided rope. Two are strong together, but three cannot quickly be broken. Who's the third strand? Who's the comforter that everyone's looking for? Who's the only one who can satisfy the eternity that's been stamped on our hearts? Do you see how these pictures of time and these pictures of relationships point us back to our need for a relationship with God the Father? In this limited time that we have on earth, we've been given this opportunity through these experiences, through these hard questions, through the seasons of life to realize that we need a relationship with God. Nothing else is going to satisfy the longing in our soul. We know what it's like to be lonely. We know what it's like to be broken. We know what it's like to go through difficult seasons. All of these experiences, time together, is to point us back to him. And it's after 12. I don't know if you can smell lunch up there in the cafe, but I think we should stand up. We should close this time in prayer. I want to encourage you, if you want to talk further about these things, you can fill out the Connect card online under this video comment. We can have a personal conversation or see one of us in the lobby. Ask the person who invited you here today. Keep this conversation going. We have the discussion guides that are out in the lobby on the table. They've been sent out in the newsletter. Keep these conversations going. I want you to understand these questions for yourself through the book of Ecclesiastes. All right, let's pray together, church family. God, we thank you so much for this time. Thank you for the beautiful snow falling down outside, and I'm reminded how you've washed our sins white as snow. Jesus, we thank you for your cleansing blood. Jesus, we thank you that you provided the way for us to have a relationship with the Father. Thank you that it's through a relationship with you that we can only find satisfaction for our longing and searching and our aching souls. God, thank you for the lunch that we get to enjoy now. Thank you for our members meeting at one o'clock and the things that will be decided and discussed there. God, thank you so much for this time together. Would you encourage us in your word this week, Father? Thank you for these things and for the season of life that you've granted us. In Jesus' name, amen.